Have you ever been in a situation where you witnessed somebody behaving badly and found yourself in a dilemma whether you should tell somebody else or keep it to yourself? Anybody ever been in that dilemma? If you're a parent, it's a regular occurrence, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe you uh, proclaim the uh, faults of others on a regular basis, especially the little ones living at home. But here's a question again. Have you ever been in a situation where you witnessed someone behaving badly and found yourself in a dilemma as to whether you should tell someone or keep it to yourself? Several years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had several rules for those who would serve with me on the youth staff. Some of those rules were pretty plain and straightforward, and some of them were specific to the church. One of them was, if you were a staff member of the opposite sex, you could not uh, spend time in private with a youth of the opposite sex, especially driving around. You can't drive them around anywhere. We had, uh, we had a sterling youth staff, loved all of them, but I had this one guy on staff who would consistently drop the ball in that area. He loved hanging around with the youth, and I thought his heart was right with that, and he would have them over to his house when his wife wasn't home. And sometimes the girls would show up, and the guys would show up, and sometimes the guys would go home, and the girls would be left, and it just got to be an awkward situation. So I found out about this, and I, I talked to him, and I said, listen, dude, you cannot have a youth outing or be alone with, with, with youth unless you have a staff member with you of the opposite sex, preferably, but at least you've you got, you got to have, there's power in numbers here, all right? You can't be doing this, and you can't be alone with one of these teenagers, especially the teenager girls. So I said, yeah, yeah, and then he would do it again. And it just started ticking me off. So I would talk to him, and then he'd clean up, and then he'd drop the ball again, and I, I didn't doubt his passion for the kids, I just doubted his ability to follow the rules. So we planned a trip to go to another country. And I got the staff together, I said, okay guys, we are planning a trip next summer, we're gonna go to Mexico. I need a group of people that will go with us for all these kids that are gonna go. Who wants to go? And his hand went up, and his wife's hand went up. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll talk about this, uh, talk about it later. And so we, we uh, started putting plans together to make this trip happen, and I prayed about it, and there's just no way I felt comfortable. He just wasn't following the rules. So how could I trust him to do so in another country? So I invited he and his wife over to our house and we had dinner with them and the plan that night was to tell them that they could not go on the trip. And they, once I told them, they got very angry. And I said, listen, it's, it's not that I don't love you, it's not that I'm asking you not to work with the kids, it's not that I don't want to work with you, it's just that I, I got to be able to turn my back on you in another country and know that you're going to be following the rules and I'm just not confident you can at this point. They stormed out of the house, they got in their car, they were steaming mad. I walked out to the car before they could leave. I said, I just want to tell you, I, again, I love you. I'm not saying I doubt your passion for youth or your gifts to minister. You just, I, I, I gotta be able to trust you before I give this level of responsibility. They stormed away. <clears throat> I had brought the lead pastor up to speed on what was going on, and so I scheduled a meeting with him this the following week after that, I said, listen, you know what has been happening with this couple, and I just got to tell you, they, they're mad that, I couldn't, that I'm not going to let them go on the trip. He said, you know what? You did the right thing. That's exactly what, what I would have done. You did the right thing. So I felt better about that, but still I felt badly. Came back from the youth trip. We had an amazing success. Lives were changed. Kids loved 
ministering. We had a good staff. Everybody followed the rules. It was great. We got back. Kids gave testimony. We had an awesome experience. That couple came back. They helped us. Attitudes changed a little bit, but they still helped us, and I still loved on them, and and that, they, they helped us all the way through our, our ministry there as youth pastor. A couple years later, I resigned that position and moved on to the next, uh, next thing that God had for us to do. And when I left, I sat down with the lead pastor. I said, I just want you to know that I'm leaving, and this couple is still here, and they really need somebody to watch them. Not that I doubt them, not that I doubt their love for Jesus, just watch them. And I left. But a year went by and I get a phone call. That youth pastor, the uh, youth pastor, that youth staff leader actually had begun an ongoing relationship with one of the teenage girls. And before long, he, he was behaving really um, uh, badly. His marriage crumbled, and, and uh, you can figure out how the rest went. I think to myself, when is it right to tell somebody about the bad behavior in somebody else? And when is it right to keep it to yourself? In Scripture, we're commended for both of those things. And so the question for us as we get back into the story of Noah is, in Genesis 9, 18 to 28, we're going to come across a sin, a sin that happened on behalf of two individuals. And the question we ask ourselves this morning is, how do I handle my brother's or sister's sin? Noah has been given incredible mercy and love, grace from God. Noah actually has saved his family and he has a new chance to start again. But just like Adam, Noah, once he's saved and blessed by God, Noah sins again. Proving to us that Noah and his family have all retained the sin nature. Even though God saved them, they retain the sin nature and it's about to rear its head in some ugly ways. So let's talk about what happened. Sin number one, Noah's sin. Genesis 9, verse 20, this is where we pick up. Noah began to be a man of the soil. You can only guess why, right? He probably never wanted to see a body of water in the rest of his life. So Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. All right? What does this tell us? It tells us that anyone can sin. Noah was chosen by God. Noah walked with God like Enoch walked with God. Noah was called blameless by God. How would you like to be called blameless by God? Anybody would like that? Yes, a wonderful compliment. Blameless. 1 Peter 2 says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was God's preacher for the day, God's man for the day. If Noah, a blameless preacher of God who walked with God, can sin and fall, guess who else can sin and fall? Yeah, everyone in this room, including yours truly. Given the right set of circumstances, given the right timing, given the, given the right issues that you're dealing with in your life at the time, or I'm dealing with in my life at the time, I am capable of far more, doing far more damage than I think I'm capable of doing. Noah demonstrates this. Now, you might say, <clears throat> well, Craig, you just got drunk. And so we, we say to ourselves, well, there's a scale here, right? Getting drunk is not so bad. I mean, he didn't go out and murder anybody. Not that he had a lot to choose from at the time, but, you know, there's not a lot of people on the planet. 
but he just got drunk. No big deal. It could happen to anyone. True. True. You might be tempted to expect more, however, from the premier example of somebody who walks with God. Noah was saved from the flood. All the pagans were destroyed. Noah was chosen by God because he was God's man. And because of his faith, he saves his family. Hey, this is a premier guy. This is a guy that you would invite in if you were doing a conference and you wanted to attract a lot of people. This is your guy. This is the Billy Graham, like, this would be bigger than Billy Graham because he was like the only preacher of righteousness in his day. No competition. And don't forget this. Any act of sin is a meaningful act of rebellion against God. Right? Any act of sin. So even though we have a tendency to scale this and say, well, he just got plastered. We have a tendency to say there's other sins that he could have done that could have been far worse than this. We may be right, but any act of sin is a meaningful act of rebellion against God. If you know what God wants you to do and you say, take a long walk, I'll do what I want to, that's the very definition of sin, and it's bad, right? God paints all the people in the Old Testament with all the same brush. He shows us their foibles and all, and I love that about what God does for us because it makes me think if Noah was a different guy, you know, I could never achieve that where, where I would be chosen as the only blameless one in his generation. But Noah had, had feet of clay just like you do and just like I do. It proves to us that anyone, not that anyone can fall, but it proves to us that everyone does fall. Everyone, including yours truly. That's why we have the Bible. The Bible reminds us of all these things. And by the way, Michael and I are sitting there, we're going over these notes, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's something we're missing here. And you know what we're missing? Noah is 601 years old. Yeah. 601, and virile, strong. He just built a boat. He's strong. He is young for a 600-year-old man, and Noah should have known better. 600 years. He walks with God, and he does this? I mean, how many of you are 100 years old? Okay, there you go. Can you, like 600, you know what that tells me? It tells me that no matter what age you get to, you are capable of dropping the ball, right? Watch yourself. Take heed lest you fall. No, uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba in his 50s. And David wrote those psalms that beautifully expressed his love for God. Moses, <laughs> Moses, Moses. Miracles of God. Takes people out of Egypt. Goes all the way through the desert with these miserable, complaining Israelites almost gets to the point where he's into the promised land and Moses drops the ball, hits the rock, and he looks at the people and he says, how much do I have to put up with you rotten people and you make me bring water from the rock, whack, whack. You know how the sin was there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He didn't give the glory to God. He complained about the people and he did the miracle. And God said, no, Moses, 
You've been waiting for the promised land, but now that's off the table. You're not going to make it in. So it doesn't matter how old we are. <laughs> 600 or 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 to 15 says, Take heed lest you fall. All right? What Noah did. Let's talk about what Ham did. We can identify with Noah, right? His was a failure of consistency. He dropped the ball, right? He's by himself. He's all on his own. He gets the vineyard, the, 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 the grapes. He's got no refrigerator. There's no electricity. They ferment. He drinks too much. He gets wasted, right? We can identify somewhat with that. He drops the ball. Ham, however, walks open-eyed into his sin. Ham is different. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. <laughs> and that's all we have. Now, scholars debate hotly on what this verse contains. There's some Hebrew in this verse. It seems to indicate that there was a deep, intimate relationship that has happened here. However, uh, if you read it at face value, I'm not sure you need to go down that road. There's a lot here that is said that we can glean from, and it applies to all of us, especially, believe it or not, to our children. So if you are under the age of 20, this is an interesting story for you. Here are three, three main things in Ham's behavior that we can see. Number one, Ham made himself look good by pointing out the failure in his father. It's not just seeing his father in the state that was the sin, right? He walks in on him, oops, sorry, and walk out. But he didn't. There was something more in Ham's heart. Here it is. Ham liked that Noah sinned like this. He took joy in it. There's nothing in his behavior that would cause him to say, I shouldn't be here. Let me remove myself. All that is in there is that Ham enjoyed seeing Noah fall. That's interesting, number one. Ham liked seeing Noah's failures. Number two, Ham disrespected his father by mocking him in front of his brothers. What's the first thing that Ham did? Ham went out and told his brothers. This was an attack against his father's honor. In other words, Noah found God's chosen man in his generation in a state of degradation and sin, and he capitalized on it when he went to his brothers. He not only enjoyed seeing Noah fall, now he wants to tell other people about how Noah fell. Why would anyone mock the failures of somebody else? Why would that even happen? What do you think? Why would anyone mock the failure. I mean, if you drop the ball, if you make yourself look silly or stupid or you fall into sin, why would somebody find out about it and then run to tell other people with joy? Why would they do that? Make yourself look better? Yeah? What's that? Makes you feel good? Yeah, yeah. Makes you feel better about yourself? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, they, they want to get they want to show their, themselves as being higher than the other person? Are any of these reasons, by the way, good reasons? <laughs> They're all bad. 
Ham sees what his father did, and instead of being broken and sorry for what his dad did, instead of trying to look at his dad and say, do we have an issue here, can we fix it? Can I be a part of the solution? Ham takes joy in the failure of his dad, and then goes and tells other people about the failures of his dad. Now, the reason why you're thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't sound so bad, is because you're inundated in a culture that does this all the time. We have roasts that we love to watch, and all it is is mocking the failures or the, the faults of somebody else. And we think that's normal. Nowhere in God's word, nowhere in God's word, does it ever say take joy in the failures or the shortcomings of your brother and sister. And for goodness sakes, nowhere in God's word does it say, and tell your friends. <laughs> this is what Ham did. Worse than that, Ham did this about his dad. Number three, in doing this, Ham made an attack on God's judgment. Who declared that Noah was the righteous man in his generation? Who declared that Noah walked with God? Noah didn't say that. God said that. Who declared that Noah was a herald of righteousness for his culture? God did. It's all God. Now Noah falls into sin. So what does Ham do? He challenges the judgment of God to say that Noah was righteous. Maybe God's wrong. Because no righteous man would act like that. Ham not only dishonored Noah as his parent, he disliked Noah as a preacher of righteousness. He liked catching his father in a state of degradation and sin. He liked parading around Noah's failures. He would have made a great newscasting station in our world today. He would spread the news of this man's failure to anyone who would listen. One theologian named Robert Candace said this, Ah, Ham has found out that the godly man is no better than his neighbor's. He has got behind the scenes. He has made a notable discovery, and now he cannot contain himself. Forth he rushes, hot and impatient, to publish the news, and so welcome this news was to himself. Here's in contrast. Want to see what the brothers did? The brothers, Genesis 9.23. When they heard from Ham what Noah had done, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both on their shoulders. And they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. You know how they responded? They were grieved that their dad had dropped the ball. And their actions demonstrated it. It grieved them to see their dad this way. They respected their dad regardless of the fact that he had feet of clay. They respected their dad regardless of the fact that he had sinned. They did not join with him in mocking the condition of their father. Now, it is plausible to assume that they told Noah what had happened when Noah was passed out. Because in the next verse it says, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant. And then he said, May God enlarge the God of 
Uh, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. You see where Ham went horizontal to his brothers, Shem and Japheth went vertical to God. They did what they were responsible to do and they honored their father. They covered Noah's sin. Ham exposed Noah's sin. I imagine Noah should probably, do, what emotions do you think went through his mind? He had to be embarrassed. This is not something that a father would be proud of. Nobody in this room. He was shamed to see what Ham had done to him. And because of Ham's sin, this curse affected generations. We'll talk about this next week. And so the question I want to finish up with, actually, that's the story. This is kind of what I want to explore with you. How do I handle my brother's sin? Is it right to expose it, or is it best to cover it? Ham mocked his dad, advertised to his brother. He was delighted to find fault in his brother. But is there ever a time that we should expose sin? Sometimes, yes. But always in order. And that's the key. Sometimes we must expose sin, but it's always done in God's order. So the question is, how do I know when to expose sin? Like Noah, by the way, did with Ham. Noah exposed Ham's sin. How do I know how to, when it is right to expose sin? Well, the only question you need to ask yourself is this. Do you have the authority to do that? Do you have the authority to expose sin? Before you answer, let me give you the, the only people in Scripture who have the authority in Scripture to, to expose sin. The only people that have done it were prophets, elders, and parents. Those are the only three categories who have the right to expose sin. Let me talk to you about it in a little bit. Exposing sin for God's authority figures, by the way, is not an option, it's a responsibility. Those three groups, those authority figures, have the right to expose sin. One verse, and there's many of, the, of these, but here's one in Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. When you discipline your child, you're demonstrating love to your children. If you do not discipline your child, but always cover their sin and pretend it's not there, that is an act of not love. <laughs> in Scripture, you not only have the option, but the responsibility to discipline your children. You are their parent, and this is what God has given you parenthood to do. There are rules to follow. And so here's some steps on when to expose sin. So I wrote down a couple of different questions for you. Number one, how do I handle an accusation I have with a brother? All right, this is horizontal. So let's say that you have an accusation against a brother. By the way, if you read Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, it gives us a step-by-step -step process of how to do this. When you have a problem horizontally with your brother or sister, it is interesting to understand and note that that problem must be a sin against you. <laughs> not a sin against somebody else. If your brother or sister sins against you, then go to your brother or sister in private. Go one-on-one. -on -one. And if you follow the step-by-step -step process, then you take a spiritual leader with you, and you try and that spiritual leader helps you determine what really happened, and on and on you go. You can read it for yourself there. But there is no point in Matthew 18 
where it says that it's your job to expose the sin in your brother or sister. That's interesting. Read it for yourself. It's amazingly simple. You may address it in the life of somebody else, but you are never given the right to expose it. Number two, how do I handle an accusation against an elder? Ah, 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except in the evidence of two or three witnesses. That means that people have seen and experienced what you have seen and experienced as a sin in the life of an elder. And then you have steps to go by. These witnesses go to the other elders of the church. And then if the sin is persisted and obvious in the life of that elder, those elders with you as maybe one of the witnesses, but those elders now have the responsibility to go in front of the church and expose the elder. Look at the next verse. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the... Read those next few words. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If you want to be an elder, you should really think twice about it, all right? Because if you are found in a sin that you've been covering up and you do nothing to admit it or fix it when, you are, when, it is, when it is revealed to you, somebody witnesses what you've done. Now keep in mind, this is not like I drive, I drive 65 in a 60-hour zone, right? We understand that Craig has a heavy foot on the pedal. Let's get rid of him, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about here as in a sin that is destroying the character of the person of the elder or that goes against elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 4 or Titus 2 or, or Titus chapter 1 or sins that are hurting the flock. Then you go to the other elders and in our church constitution it gives you step-by-step process how to do this but the end product is if the elder is unrepentant, the elders stand in front of the church and inform the church. Want to be an elder? Yeah, neither do I now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> this is always done by the elders in a formal setting, and it's always done as a process of going up the chain in authority. Or we should say responsibility. Number three, what if the sin in the elder's life is not known by the other elders? Then you go to the guilty elder alone. You always do that. It's always the first step. You always go to the, the elder alone. And if you're not successful, you go to the other elders. Number four, what if I'm in a church and the elders are all getting away with stuff? <laughs> if the elders will not handle a situation or if they ignore a situation, you only have one option. Walk away. You have no other option. People come to me all the time and they say, well, Craig, I know my elder's doing this or my elder's doing that and I got to fix it, I got to do something. Nowhere, nowhere is any church person given the responsibility of cleaning up the church. You're only given one responsibility. It's to live at peace with all men and leave vengeance up to the Lord. Your responsibility is to get out of Dodge. That's the only option you have. Number five, what if sin crosses into a legal territory? you go up the chain of responsibility. Legal infractions against you, stealing personally, or they steal from the church, or legal actions against others that are endangering others, drunk driving, abusing children, all of those things, and you are obliged to report this to the authorities. So you go up the chain. You go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Then you go to the elders that are working with them. 
Then you go, if it's an infraction legally, you go to the authorities. Right? But you better be sure of your accusation if you go that high up. The common denominator in all of this is if you have a problem with somebody else and it's something that is sin, you only have one option. You go up the chain. You never are given responsibility to go this way. And by the way, that I think is what happened with Shem and Japheth. I think they went to their dad and told him, even though we're not told this in scripture, but Noah knew something had happened to him and we're not told why. My guess is Shem and Japheth went to their dad and say, hey, Ham said he did this and you should know. And Noah, as the authority, takes responsibility to fix it. Now listen, follow God's order or you will lead yourself and your family into disaster. You might think you're doing God's work for him. You might even be duped into believing it's your job to clean up the church. <laughs> oh dear. Doing God's work for him. But you'll end up hurting so many people because you are not following God's ordered plan for how to deal with sin. No person is ever given the leeway to take an accusation of sin to the general public. Nowhere. And if you find one, I'd love to, find, I'd love to read it. Show me wrong. Uh, it's not there. But it's normal for our culture. But it's not normal in the church. So my question to you is this. Why? Why doesn't God allow us to do this? Why doesn't God allow me to find something out about Pat and to go to Gina and tell her what I found out. Why is that never, ever an option? Do you know, want to know why? What's that? It's gossip, but what does gossip do? Gossip tears down the character of somebody else for some perverted, twisted reason in your heart. And it never demonstrates love. Because you know what love does? Love covers a multitude of sin. If you get joy in the faults of others, there's something seriously wrong with your heart. My goal is not to ruin your reputation. Your sin is going to do that on its own. My need to expose your sin only shines a light in my own heart. So I just wrote down some possible motivations for exposure. Why would I want to do this? Why would I want to expose a sin in, the, in somebody else? Retaliation? They didn't treat me right, so I'm going to get back at them. They did something against me. They inflicted justice on me. I'm going to inflict justice on them. Vengeance. I go through a struggle, and I find out how I can hurt the other person. They hurt me in the past. I'm going to get vengeance. That's uh, number two. Self-promotion. Uses somebody else's sin to make myself look better. By the way, this happens all the time when we use the faults of others to get a laugh for ourselves. Number four, puffing up. Uses somebody else's struggle to make myself feel better about myself. Look how bad they are. Don't you think better of me now? Number five, sheer joy. This is the most perverted of them all. This is where Ham landed. I use somebody else's shortcomings or failures to get joy for myself. Ham seemed totally thrilled, exposing his father's failures. So, do we ever have the right to expose sin? Only when we go up the chain. Never this way. Ever, ever, ever. When do we cover sin? Every single time. 
I know this is going to blow you away. You're going to probably go, I've got to listen to this again on the podcast. And you can. <laughs> when do we cover sin? 1 Peter 4, 7, 8 says this, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, the sky's falling. The end is here. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. And above all, what does above all mean, church? Yeah, above all, above all these other things, keep loving one another earnestly, since love, church, what does it do? In the church, we love one another, and love always covers a multitude of sins. Do you know how many secrets I know about you people? Yeah? How would you like for me to share that with the rest of the crowd? How quickly would that blow your view of me, tear it down? Wouldn't that be awful? And you, the first thing you would do is you would look at me and say, why would you ever do that? And my response to you would be, because I love you. <laughs> or shouldn't my response be, I would never, I would never share this information with anyone. Why would I do such a thing? I love you. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? How do we know when we should expose sin or cover sin? Now please understand, this is not talking about unrepentant sin. This is not talking about belligerent sin. This is talking about dropping the ball, which by the way, we all do. This is talking about messing up. You do not want everyone to define you by the way you drop the ball, right? Neither do I. If you repent, you'll be defined. Uh, if you repeat it, you'll be defined by it. If you repent, you'll be forgiven of it. And listen, the safest people keep secrets. <laughs> Would you ever tell your deepest secrets to somebody who doesn't keep secrets? You value those people. Why? Because you know they love you. They love you enough to listen and try and understand and help. As Christians, our default is to cover the reputation and the dignity of those around us. Listen, there's something so powerful about someone messing up in front of somebody that they respect. To have that person see it, deal with it, and never ever tell another living soul. Those are the people that we love because we know they love us. To cover someone's sin is to never let that person be defined by their one error. James 5.19 says similar words. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and somebody brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back will save a sinner from his wandering and will save his soul from death and will do what, church? will cover a multitude of sins. Why? Because I am desperately in need of protecting your reputation. Because I love you that much. We cover sin in the lives of others because we firmly believe that God is doing a work and that's not our work to do for him. He's doing a work that we cannot see. And by the way, Love not only covers a multitude of sins, if you're wondering how to love somebody else, love believes all things, love endures all things, love hopes all things, love never fails. And so if you're looking at the lives of somebody else and you're thinking to yourself, God will never fix that, they are beyond help, you are never allowed to walk down that path because your love for them mirrors the love of God that he has for them and love believes, hopes, endures all things. This is not about hiding sin. This is about covering it out of love for somebody else. 
because we believe the best of them and we never ever stop loving them. By the way, this is exactly how God feels about you. When you mess up, God sees every single action. <laughs> In fact, if you're a Christian, if you know Christ is your Savior, you take him right with you into the path. He is right there along with you. Whatever you're doing, he is participating in it through your body. You're taking Jesus into some pretty rough territory sometimes. And if you think you're getting away with it, you're not. There will come a time of reckoning. And if you're a believer, you should never be able to put your head on the pillow and say, oh, God's still in love with me. I'm good to go. Romans says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And then the next few words is, are you that stupid? Actually, it said, God forbid. But in my translation, it says, are you that stupid? <laughs> because it says after that, how shall we who have been freed to sin live any longer therein? You like being in jail so much that you want to be freed by God from jail and turn your back on him to walk into the cell, put the shackles back on, and sit in the jail cell a while longer? You have a totally misunderstanding, a total, terrible misunderstanding of what it means for Christ to have freed you and for you to want to be back in bondage. And some of us are. Some of us are trying to walk that tightrope where we're in the world of Christ and we're in the world of the devil. Christ has set you free. Don't get tempted to move backwards. And by the way, God's forgiveness is constant. And God does this for us. He believes the best of us. He gives us unending forgiveness. And he never holds our sin against us. God literally covers our sin with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, through their reactions, question, can you name the difference between the attitudes of Ham and his brothers? Are you able to look at this story and say, yeah, this is why Ham did this, and this is why his brothers did this? Well, the bottom line is one revealed in finding fault in somebody else. The character of the brothers is revealed because they love, or in Ham is revealed because he loved finding the fault in somebody else. And the other brother, the other two, were grieved when they found it. When I find out about sin in somebody else's life, for me to get joy out of that, there's something seriously wrong with my heart. The first thing that should happen is not, oh, yeah, I knew they would do that. Could have told you that was coming. The first thing that should happen is it should break our hearts. And I can say that concretely because that's exactly how God feels about it. That's the difference how we approach the sins in others. How we approach the sin that we see in others is actually tells us more about our own heart than it does about theirs. The Spirit of God gives me the ability to see sin. Literally, in John 17, it says, the Spirit of God leads me into all truth. I'm able to see sin in a brand new way. Then he gives me the responsibility as a brother or sister to confront sin. If I see sin in you, I'm going to come to you one-on-one -on -one and I'm going to say, listen, I'm only here because I love you, but dude, you're messing up. And I'm not saying it because I'm getting joy out of this. It breaks my heart. But we got to talk about this because you're messing up your own life and you're messing up the lives of the little circles around you. we got to talk. That's an attitude of love. And it's exposing the sin, but it's, it's only between brothers. And if that brother ever says, well, forget you, I'm going to do what I want to do, you never have the right to go to somebody else and say, let me tell you how this person just messed up. 
God never gives me the authority to publish sin in church without some authority being involved. So bottom line is, do people see you as a tabloid or a diary? <laughs> you like that, huh? Do people see you as a tabloid or a diary? <laughs> some people I know are tabloids. Some people I know are diaries. All right, do you like that? <laughs> are you loose with the tender information of others? Or are you, are you known as somebody who protects the reputation of others? Let me say that one more time, because you were reading about Hillary's adopted baby. Are you, are you loose with the tender information of others? Or are you known as somebody who protects the reputation of others? Maybe you're no, known as the tabloid publisher. By the way, do you want to know how to know who you are? If people come to you asking about other people all the time, I've got bad news for you. You're the tabloid. Because they only come to you for one reason. They know you've got the lowdown on others. And they like hearing about it. People never come to me and say, can you give me the lowdown on this other person? They'll ask me, how are they doing? They'll ask me, uh, you know, how's, how's Dorothy doing? They'll ask me, they'll ask me the, the most wonderful questions about the people that I know. I love having conversations about other people with other people because it usually comes down to, hey, I just wonder, is, is, is Jimmy all right? There's no Jimmy here, right? All right. Is, uh, is Sarah all right? And, and I'm able to kind of say, you know, they're struggling a little bit. You could pray for them a little bit. But they never come to me and say, Sarah cheating on her husband? You want to know why? Because they know I'm not going to say. Oh, in fact, I'm going to look at them and say, why would you ever ask me such a thing? What's wrong with you? Right? Are you known as a diary or are you known as the tabloid? People are comfortable asking certain people about others for a reason. Do people realize you're somebody who protects their character or damages it? Every time, all the time. Even if you have to go up the chain because there's a sin that's destroying the life of somebody else and you have to go to the elders and do that do the chain thing, all the time and every time, your only responsibility is to cover the sins of your brothers or sisters. All right. How does that make you feel? How would you like to be in a church where you know the people in the aisle you're sitting in are only interested in your best and covering your sins because they believe God is doing a work in you just like he's doing a work in their lives? How would you like to be in that kind of a church? Wouldn't that be great? How would you like to be in a church where you know everybody's talking about you as soon as you leave the church building? Wouldn't that be a crummy place to be? Interesting, huh? Questions. I know I don't usually do this, but this is a weird one, so not a weird one. It's, this, is a, this is an interesting one. Any questions? Anything not clear? Anything I left hanging out there? Questions in your mind? When should you cover church sin? All the time. Why should you cover church uh, sin, church? Why should you cover sin? Protect the reputation. And out of? Love covers a multitude of sins. If you really love somebody, that's how you behave. Got it? Pretty simple, right? But yet so complex. May we be a church that loves this way.